right, we're in Amos chapter 5, but we're going to start in Romans chapter 1, so you can do whatever you want. <laughs> Turn your Bible wherever you want. Let's pray and ask God to bless our study of the word. Father, as we approach you, your word, we ask you to help us to be humble, to be eager to hear what you have to say to a lost generation, Father, and we just pray that... Uh, we would understand the point of what Amos the great prophet is trying to get across today. We give you glory for giving us clear communication in Christ's name, amen. All right, so today we're gonna talk about religion in church. I hope that's okay. <laughs> religion, um, all through life we meet religious people. We, some of us were raised in a religious home and there's people of all sorts of faiths, right? And more and more as the world becomes sort of interconnected, I mean, there's always been places that where there are a lot of religions kind of mingling together. The Roman Empire was a place like that. But um, in modern, the modern world, a country like America, where everybody wants to come here, um, the religious scene changes all the time and it becomes more and more diverse. We, we meet all kinds of people, people from Islam, from Hinduism, we meet Sikhs and Buddhists and Baha'i people and Jainists and all sorts of local religions and small sort of uh, unique religions that come around. And America, um, especially in the 19th century, is, was one of the leading producers of spin-off faiths of Christianity, things that are not Christian but um, uh, new religions, but uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, uh, Christian Science would be some of the bigger ones, but there's tons of little ones too. And uh, we, because of our freedom here, people can just make up whatever they want and follow whatever they want. So um, they all they all testify to one thing, though, that human beings are spiritual beings, that we are made spiritual. We want to relate to the universe in some spiritual way, and um, we're made that way. And all of the religions I just mentioned have one thing in common. They're man-made, they're man-made. Whether people understand it or not, the Bible says that religions are a way of avoiding God. They're not a way of approaching God, they're a way of avoiding God. That's the biblical view. And Romans chapter one verse 20 says, going back to humanity's earliest days, it says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that they are without excuse. So God's essential nature can be grasped from creation. The fact that God is infinite, God is all-powerful, God is creative, God is intelligent, God is a person, um, God is moral. All of that you can just see in creation, especially in the creation of us, human beings. There's only one God, and when men rebelled against God, men created substitute gods, because they do have this spiritual impulse. Verse 21 says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now that's really describing pagan religion which was the dominant faith all over the ancient world of course. Many gods, polytheism is what we call it, many gods. And of course over the centuries um, 
after Christianity sort of became a dominant faith and paganism sort of started slipping away, it was becoming in, in, in certain areas of the world anyway, but people came up with all kinds of new religions, this new ideas, just speculation, just adding or changing or mixing and matching ideas and there are all kinds of gods of philosophical speculation, there's gods of localities, just gods for certain places, um, gods designed to make one group feel singled out from all the other groups, there were religions like Shinto would be a classic example of that in Japan, they Nobody comes to you and evangelizes you to be followed the Shinto religion because it's Japanese religion for Japanese people and it's about Japan and they don't really care if anybody else follows it or knows about it. So some religions even claim you can become a god yourself. Good luck with that. <laughs> but Mormonism, Mormonism teaches that very plainly that the goal is to become a god over your own world just like our god is a god over our world and um, all kinds of ideas out there. And because we in America believe that being nice is the most important human value, far more important than truth in our culture, far more important than hearing what the living God says, and far more important than seeking His will, many people invented the idea that all religions must lead to God, that that's, that's how it is. And you hear that all the time. The way I hear it mostly from people is when they say there are many paths to God. There are many paths to God. I don't know who said that first, but that's, that's what caught on, that expression. The Bible would say it in a slightly different way. The Bible would say there are many paths to avoid God. And that's exactly what the book of Romans is talking about. Men substitute gods of their own choosing or their own imaginations or whatever. There are many substitutes for God. So religion is actually another form of rebellion against the God who's actually there. Now most religions teach that the more dedicated you are to them, the better it will be for you. The better, the, the better blessings will flow to you. If you're more dedicated, you give more, you sacrifice more, you um, do rituals more, you d give your time, whatever the thing might be. The greater chance if you do all these things, you will have of achieving blessings from the gods or God and and uh, or the universe or whatever you want to call it and that's how you achieve whatever form of salvation that that particular religion might be promoting. So they encourage devout attention to rituals or practices that that particular faith dictates for you. So today in Amos we're going to look at people, um, people of Israel who were dedicated to their religion. And they even use the name of the real God in their religion, Yahweh, the, the name that God revealed to um, His people. That, that Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that's actually there. And people want to seek favor from God and blessings and good fortune. That's how most people are approaching religion. How can I have a better life? What, how can the universe benefit me or luck come my way or fortune or what actually fortune is the name of a god, uh, a, a Roman god. So um, all of that, that's, that's how most people get involved with that and I can say with confidence from our text today that God hates that. He hates that. He hates religion. The God who made the universe and who made human beings hates religion that substitutes other things for him or has a superstitious view of how the world actually works. If you are super devout in whatever religion you're involved with, he doesn't hate it any less. 
he, he feels like it's a great offense to him. And it is. It is. In fact, if you attach his name to a man-made religion, it's even worse. He hates it even more. Nobody likes their name to be misused. Right? Do you like it when people misuse your name? Say wrong things about you? Tell people lies about you? Yeah, God doesn't like it either. Because he's perfect in every way. And his name represents his perfections. His name represents his glory. It's, that's who he is. And so when we say false things about him or twist the truth about him, it's, he doesn't like that. That's not all. He, he alone, the living God, the God that made the universe, he alone brought salvation to men through Jesus Christ. And when people use his name to lead people away from Jesus Christ, the only savior that God provided, he hates that. He hates that. And his love for sinners just cries out against false representations of him. So what's that got to do with Amos? Let's look at Amos now. I, I thought Amos was after the people of Israel for being unrighteous and unjust. Isn't that what you've been teaching us about Amos? Yes, it's true. But did you know they were also super religious? They were really religious. They were unrighteous. They were sinners. They were unjust. They were corrupt. But they were very religious. Even using God's name, Yahweh, the true name. They even believed that the God of Israel would one day come to the world and punish all the evil and establish righteousness in the world. They believed in that. And they are the very people he's going to crush. <laughs> But somehow they're not aware of it. Amazingly, they had a theology. You know the word eschatology? You've ever heard that big theological word? So eschatos is a Greek word for end, the end, or the last. And eschatology is the doctrine of the last thing. So we talk about what the Bible says about the future and the end of the world and what's coming and the millennial kingdom of Christ and all those things. That's called eschatology. They had an eschatology. These unrighteous, wicked, idolatrous people. They had an eschatology. They believed that God would prevail. And they would say that they wanted God to be with them. And the, so they were devout. They were devoutly religious. So let's kind of remember the setting here for Amos. So we're in a prophecy of Amos to a wealthy and prosperous 8th century BC kingdom of Israel. Remember Israel had been split in two. Judah and Israel. Judah in the south. Israel in the north. Amos was sent to Israel because about 30 years from Amos' time, God is going to bring the Assyrians to completely destroy Israel and take them off into captivity. And they won't be a people there anymore. And he is to tell them that their time is almost over, but they can repent and avoid this great tragedy that God is going to bring their way. But they were living so high that they did, it's not going to happen. Yeah, we're the most powerful country in the area and our armies are strong, our cities are great, our lands are prosperous. At least the elites have everything they want. They might have to step on a few little people to have those things, but everything's going good as far as they're concerned. And they've, they've completely rejected the purpose for their existence, called out of Egypt to be a people to represent the true God to the world. They don't care anything about doing that. They become so idolatrous and so corrupt and so wicked and so hard-hearted toward God that Amos's job is to say because of that soon you will no longer be a people. He's going to take everything away. You will not live in your own homes 
anymore. Boy, when you look at the news in Ukraine and these places where the Russians have been and all the homes are destroyed and everyone's property has been destroyed or looted and people are lying dead in the streets and that's what it'll be like when the Assyrians come. In other words, God will pay them out exactly what they deserve for abandoning him and religion won't save them from that. It'll have no benefit to them whatsoever. Because they failed in righteousness. Righteousness is our relationship with God, being dutiful, worshipful, honoring, obedient servants of the true and living God. They didn't love God. They didn't obey God. They didn't worship God exclusively, even though he demanded that. And they failed in justice. Chapter 5, verse 12, it says, uh, I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You who distress the righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. So we've talked about that many times in our study of Amos so far, but they were unjust. They perverted justice. They, if you were poor or not in the, the upper echelon group, they would twist everything so they would steal your rights and your stuff and your labor and everything else. And they paid bribes to the judges who sat in the city gate and made decisions so that they would have their way. Does that ever happen in the world? <laughs> yeah, that hasn't changed too much. And that is pure evil. I know it's common, but the perversion of justice for any reason is a very great evil in the eyes of God. And when it crushes the poor so you can take advantage of them when you have everything you want, God really hates that. That's off the rails evil. So we saw last time that um, God was offering a way back. Verse 4, the Lord said, that we're in chapter 5, verse 4. He says, seek me. Seek me that you may live. And then in verse 6, seek the Lord that you may live. He's totally willing to forgive them and bless them. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't seek him. So last time we looked at God saying, seek me, seek good. But I think the biggest barrier to them seeking God is that they are religious. Things are going well and they are already religious. They think that's all he wants or all he needs. You know, some of the hardest people to share the gospel with are religious people because they've, they've got it all figured out, they think, or they're, on, they're in their system. They've got their bases covered, you know. I'm good, I'm good. I, I'm really devout about this, they think. So religious, religiosity is also a great barrier to professing Christians who won't repent of their sins or won't uh, turn to God for God. You know, they do Christian stuff to earn favors, but they don't love God for who he is. They think they're righteous because they're busy about religious things. And our, our, sinful, our sinful nature makes humility a really difficult thing to have, but that's where it starts. You have to be humble before God as a sinner, but even as a creature, we have to be humble before God. We're not gods or nothing like that. So Amos has to disabuse them of the notion that they are righteous. He has to get that out of their minds. And God's verdict on all of their religious devotion is that it wasn't about him at all. Even though they used his name. Because God knows the heart. He sees every thought and knows the motive of every heart. He knows what's actually there. But anyone could see that 
their blatant sin and their pride and their oppression of the poor meant that they had no interest in the true God Yahweh as he really is. He's a moral being and he made us moral and morality never entered their minds regarding what they actually did, what, how they treated other people. Especially people on the lower economic scale or in a lower class from the elite people. So just like many people today who profess some sort of faith in Christ, I think most Americans would still say they believe in Jesus in some way, but actually they despise the morality that Jesus taught. They, if they have, you've actually show them the Sermon on the Mount, they go, well I'm not doing that. <laughs> and that always happens um, when Christianity is sort of a large part of a culture and then the culture changes. There's always going to be this large number of people that still mentally identify with Christianity but follow the culture. And whatever sins the culture's into, they'll go with that. That's just how it works. For most people, whatever the culture believes or whatever the wor culture worships stands over what God's word says. So God's word says this, the culture says this, we go with the culture. That happens over and over again in many nations and many lands. And some will cl cling to Jesus' name religiously religiously but not morally. That's why Jesus said okay Matthew 7:13, very famous enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. That's what Jesus said there are few who find it because people want to be on the broad road. So in 8th century BC Israel, Amos is standing against the whole culture that loves the very things that God hates. So verse 14 of chapter 5, seek good and not evil that you may live and thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you just as you have said. So they say God is with us. He says if you do this he really will be with you. You claim it but it's not true right now because you're unrepentant, you're wicked and you're an idolatrous people. They said the Lord was with them. How could they even think that and do what they did? How could they do that? Because they attached his name to a religion that they invented. And so they can easily use his name. The Lord be with us. Yahweh be us. Be our, be our God. Be our Savior. See that golden calf we erected at Bethel? That's Yahweh. That's God. And if you are dutiful in your worship to that golden calf, which they had actually done, all will be well. So the Lord says through Amos, seek good and not evil. People say that and say, oh, sure, yeah, seek good and not evil. I'm all for that. That's great. That sounds good. But then he gets really more specific. Verse 15, he says, hate evil and love good. Most people don't hate evil. They hate certain kinds of evil, but they don't hate evil as God defines it. We're supposed to hate evil and we determine what is evil by the culture, whatever the culture says. No, that's not right. <laughs> we determine what is evil by what the word of God says is evil, right? We talked last time about how justice was perverted in Israel. Very common problem anywhere in the world. But Amos says if they would just do this, hate evil and love good and seek God, God would be well disposed toward them as a nation. Look at verse 15 again. Hate evil, love good and establish justice in the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of hosts may be gracious 
to the remnant of Joseph. Joseph's descendants are the ones that lived in that northern area. But they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. Their sin had made them wealthy. And as far as they're concerned, they're sitting on the top of the world. Well, every time I hear that phrase, I think of Jimmy Cagney on the top of this giant uh, thing full of gas and blowing up. Top of the world, Ma. Anybody see that movie? But um, (laughs) he thought he was on the top of the world. And and as they say in the film, it blew right up in his face. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen here. Why repent? Why repent? For God? For God? They serve God. We serve God. What do you mean? Repent. We sacrifice to him. We've got some great music. We've got some great songs about about the Lord. And we sing those. Verse 16. Therefore. So because of their great sin. And the Lord is going to describe. Not Israel as it is. But as as what's coming. He's going to describe what's coming. So verse 16. Therefore thus says the Lord. And and when Lord you see all capital letters. That's God's name Yahweh. That's the God they claim to worship. Thus says the Lord God of hosts. The Lord. There is wailing in all the plazas. And in all the streets they say alas. Alas. They also call the farmer to mourning. And professional mourners to lamentation. And in all the vineyards there is wailing. And then maybe there's the most understated promise of divine judgment ever. At the end of. Uh, verse 17 there he says because I will pass through the midst of you says the Lord there will be wailing and mourning and lamentation because the Lord says I will pass through the midst of you well that that doesn't sound too scary That, that would be great if the Lord passed through the midst of us wouldn't it well it should be scary it should be scary it is a holy and pure God who will pass through their midst. The judge of all the earth who will pass through their midst. And you know if the Israelites were reading their Bibles. And I don't know if they were by this time. I don't think so. But they would remember the story of their creation. As a people. Out of Egypt. They would know that story. The Exodus. They would know what pass through means. And that it's a scary phrase. Not a happy phrase. That's the exact term Moses used for Passover, the first Passover, the last of the plagues that were brought on Egypt. Remember the firstborn of every child in the land would die. It was a plague that God brought them. Supernatural miraculous plague. And remember they, they put blood over the door, the Israelites, so that, so that the angel of death would pass over. But if God passes through, he's bringing judgment. But he'll pass over the house covered with blood. Which is a perfect image of what Christ did for us. The blood of the lamb covering us from God's wrath. Here's Moses' words. Exodus 12, 22. The Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts. The Lord will pass over the door. And will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. To remember that. Passover. That was the first Passover. The Lord will pass through to smite. But he'll pass over where the blood covers. So the Lord passing through meant death. The Lord passing over means life. The Lord passing through Israel is why there will be wailing and mourning and lamentation throughout the land as it describes there. 
Then at verse 18, Amos chapter 5, verse 18, the subject turns to religion. And I think when I first read this as a young Christian, it was kind of surprising. I mean, these corrupt Israelites who pervert justice and cast righteousness to the ground, they're looking forward to the great judgment of God. The very people who are wicked, idolatrous, cruel, unjust, and oppressing the poor, they're really looking forward to the coming of God. The great day of judgment. The day of the Lord. Do you know that expression? The day of the Lord. It's the first use. In fact, Amos is the first use we have in writing of that expression, the day of the Lord. It shows up all through the Bible. But Amos was the first one to use it. But he uses it in such a way that it's really clear that they believed it. They already, that was part of their whole religious thinking and their system, this idea of um, Amos, uh, the day of the Lord. And so Amos is using that because they do understand it. They do have this eschatology. They do have this view of the end where God comes and punishes evil and sets up his kingdom and rights all wrongs. So in the New Testament it's always referring to Christ's return, the, the uh, ultimate end of the world. Sometimes in the Bible and in the prophets it's used of a direct act of powerful judgment against an individual nation in a certain circumstance, the day of the Lord. It's always about judgment though. In fact Isaiah 13 is one of the most powerful when God proclaims judgment on the most powerful empire of the world at that time, Babylon, and God says what's going to happen to Babylon. In fact here it is, Isaiah 13, 6 it says, Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified, pain and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their face is aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place. The fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. That's what the day of the Lord means. And amazingly, amazingly, these Israelites that Moses is speaking to just can't wait for that day. They're looking forward to it. Peter and Paul both use that phrase day of the Lord in the New Testament for the coming of Christ to set up his kingdom and punish all the evil in the world. To punish wickedness and establish his righteous kingdom. Both Peter and Paul say it will come like a thief in the night suddenly and unexpectedly. So Amos uses it first in the Bible but um, the idea of the day of the Lord is not new to the people he's talking to. They already understand what that means. And they're happy about it. it it's amazing to me that they, they're thrilled that God's going to come and destroy the evil in the world when they are the very description of that evil, the very essence of that evil. These thoroughly corrupt people are looking forward to the day of the Lord. And Amos tells them, he says, you've got it all wrong, guys. You've got it all wrong. Your religion is not going to help you. They think other people will be judged, right? Well, how could they? How could they not fear that day because of their sin? Well, 
Can you think of any Christians that are charlatans and complete jerks and promote false doctrine and make money off duped poor people and live super lavish lifestyles while they're stealing money from poor people promising them things they can't possibly give them and do all, can you think, and, and still they're looking forward to the day of the Lord? They think God's going to come and bless them and they're part of the righteous? You, are there people like that? Yeah, turn on your TV. <laughs> There's many and I think many are, are, I think many are phony and they just say it, but I think some of those people really believe that they're going to be in good shape on the, the day when Christ comes. Even though Jesus says quite different in Matthew chapter 7. But the Israelites of Amos' Amos's day weren't religious charlatans in the sense that we have them now, but they were very religious in a superstitious sort of way. We'll, we'll give, we'll sing, we'll honor, we'll bring sacrifices, we'll do the whole thing, and the gods or the God or the God that we call Yahweh will bless us. They didn't throw those golden calves up to be ignored. They threw them up to worship them. They wanted people not to go to Jerusalem. They, they did want them to worship and they did. And they were representatives of the true God. They had his name. They believed they were worshiping Yahweh when they sacrificed to these idols that they had made. And they accepted other gods too. They were worshiping other gods too. Because you know, I mean God is God but you want to have all your bases covered if the God of the crops happens to be there too. We can worship him as well and all these other gods. And so they did have this eschatology, this theology of the last days and they too were looking for the day that God would judge evil and bless the righteous and they never applied it to themselves. So to them righteousness was doing the required rituals. As long as they did that they thought they were in good shape. That's religion. I will do the prescribed things and God will bless me for that. They didn't think of themselves as moral monsters. Perverting justice is just how, that's how you do business, right? That's business. <laughs> Sexual immorality was so common, so common, how could it be wrong? It's just like today. It's just acting on the desires God put into me, so there's nothing wrong with that. And righteousness? they would say, well, what does that mean exactly? You know, righteousness, what is that? You know, the prophets, they're so puritanical and all of that, but uh, does God really care if I bend a few rules here and there to get ahead? Does is, is that really matter? I mean, I am devout. You've got to understand I'm devout. I bring my sacrifices. I give. I, I stand there and sing praises to his name and grab a temple prostitute while I'm there. But they really thought they'd come out okay. Amos says in verse 18, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. What purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? And then he says it. It will be darkness and not light. They were looking forward to the light. He says it's not going to be light for you. You have to understand. It's going to be darkness for you. So many people will be surprised on judgment day. Surprised. The Gospels talk about that. Jesus talked about that. Their, their moral compass was so far off, it said north when it was pointing south. You know, they were just completely wrong. They thought the day of the Lord would be for them this light, this light beaming from God upon the world and they would share in it. He says, no, for you it will be darkness, he says. God is coming to judge. And they believed that, but they believed that they would be okay and he says they'll be swallowed up in that judgment. It'll be darkness for them. In verse 19 Amos says there will be no escape 
And then he paints this mental picture for them in verse 19. It, it's, in a sense it's kind of funny but the, the meaning is really clear. He says the darkness will be as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him and goes home and leads his hand on the wall and a snake bites him. So you kind of picture that. You, you're, you meet a lion in the woods or whatever, you know, you're out there and go, oh my gosh, it's a lion. And you turn and you run and you run right into a bear. And the bear's trying to eat you and then you're, ah, so you run away and you get all the way home and you're all exhausted and you go, wow, I just made it. And you lean on the wall and there's a venomous snake hiding in the wall and he bites your hand and you're dead. He says, it'll be like that for you. That's what he says. No escape is the idea there. Verse 20, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it. No brightness in it. The darkness will be deep. That's exactly how Jesus described the condition of those who reject his salvation and are in hell. He calls hell outer darkness. That's what Jesus calls it. And I know people are planning to party with their friends there, but it won't be that way. It'll be outer darkness, outer darkness. Now at this point, having told the Israelites that the day of the Lord's going to be darkness for them and not light, now God speaks through the prophet about their worship. And this might be one of the most important questions that a religious person should ask themselves. What does God think of my worship? That's the most important question. What does God think of my worship? If you think he is satisfied with rituals or the quality or the quantity of gifts that you offer him then you don't know him and you're completely deceived if that's what you think it is that pleases him. So in a very famous passage this is what God thinks of Israelites worship in Amos's day verse 21. I hate, I reject your festivals nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies even though you offer, offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Religious people have to read these words and sit down and think about them. Religious devotion in itself, just the actions, don't count for anything with the living God. They don't count. They're not moving him. They're not changing the universe to come in a good way towards you or anything like that. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the holy judge of all of his rational creatures. And if you don't love him and honor him as he wishes to be loved and honored, it's going to be darkness for you. He doesn't accept that kind of worship. If you invent your own religion or follow an invented religion, even if you stick his name on it, he doesn't want your worship. It's not, well that's kind of good. It's kind of in his direction. No, no, he hates it. If you scorn his law, he doesn't want your worship. It offends him to worship and hate what he loves and hate his moral standards and hate what he's done for us. What an insult to God to act pious and care nothing for him. You know? Most religion is people simply trying to get benefits or blessings from whatever power they, they have to deal with. God doesn't want to hear that. And that's not the way the world is set up and that's not what it's all about. 
The human condition is far too broken and wicked to be fixed by ritual. God doesn't want to hear anything about people trying to get benefits out of him. So you know why we we worship as a Christian? You know why we worship? Well there's two main reasons. First and foremost is that God is worthy of our worship. That's the, that in itself is entirely appropriate reason to worship. He is infinitely above everything and everyone else combined. Think of everything else in the universe combined. It isn't nearly as worthy as he is worthy. It, It doesn't even begin to approach it. So if worship doesn't honor him but substitute some made up God in his place that is a crime against him against the very source of life the source of all the qualities that we are given by him all that is good in fact it's the essence of crime it's 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 the great sin God is worthy and if we don't honor him as he is then that's a very great sin second worship aligns us with God's purposes Worship reminds us of God's infinite worthiness and calls us to do his will. That's what worship does. If worship isn't making you obedient and desiring to honor him, if it doesn't create that in your heart, you're lost. The creator, you know, God is not starved for affection. He doesn't need us. He was very happy before he made the world. He's content. He's in bliss. He's self-delighting because he is everything. And then he makes the world and then human beings sin against him and walk away from him and he decides to reveal himself through this incredible gift of his son, God in human flesh, bearing the sin of the world, people that can't save themselves. He's, He's willing to save them out of this incredible love he has for people that despise him. So he does this amazing thing which makes him even more worthy because suddenly we see a side of him that's like, whoa, God humbled himself to bear our, the penalty of our sin. And then people treat like that, that like that's, that, that's not anything important. That's really a nice thing, it's a nice story. Thank you Jesus, thank you God. Wor- worship is the most natural and appropriate act that any creature should offer to the creator. That's just what he's owed as the creator. It's the foundational thing. It's actually the bedrock of our existence. That's why we exist in the world. To honor God. And the Israelites thought God was pleased by rituals. Like the pagan gods. But he isn't like them. He isn't like them. Because they're man made. They're substitutes for God. They're ways to avoid God. But there's much more because God is a moral being. And we're made in the image of God. So worship must align our sense of right and wrong with him. You understand what I'm saying? So when we worship him, we're aligning ourselves with his morality, his commandments, his, what he's decided we need. And he gets to decide what's right and wrong. No, I don't think he, I think we should have a part in that. No, no. You're nothing. You're tiny, short-lived little beast. And he's the creator of all things. He gets to decide what's right and wrong. And worship without aligning ourselves with what is his view of right and wrong is just noise. And if we sing beautiful praises and have this most incredible, man, my church has the coolest worship band. It's so cool. I just get so high on it. I just can't, I can't get enough. Um, Obey God? No, what do you mean? Worship without aligning ourselves with him is noise to him. 
We have a profound obligation to do right by him and our fellow creatures. That's where the justice comes in. So I mentioned um, what we saw in verse 7. Let me just kind of wrap it up with these two words. Justice and righteousness. Way back up in there we talked about it. Justice is doing right by other men. Righteousness is doing right by God. Giving him the honor he's due and obeying his commandments. So the heart of this passage is what follows in verse 24 then. So he says all of that about their worship. I hate it. I reject it. I don't want anything to do with you worshiping me. Stop it. Verse 24 he says, but, so in contrast to all of that, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. That's what he wants to see. That is worship. To honor what God says is right to love and honor God in the very ways that please him recognizing that he does not exist for us we exist for him what a shocking thought the words of verse 24 have inspired so many believers down through the ages to work for moral improvement in the world in the society work for true justice you know the long battle of the slave trade William Wilberforce and the evangelicals in England and fought for decade after decade to end the slave trade because they wanted justice to roll down like waters for their kingdom. When a kingdom where most people said, oh, I'm a Christian. In America, they had Christians labored to outlaw something that doesn't happen very often anymore, but used to happen all the time, dueling. You don't know much about that, but there's a whole history behind outlawing dueling getting men to stop being ridiculous. <laughs> and then the temperance movement to cut down the massive amounts of drunkenness that were going on in our culture and people hurting each other through that. Hospitals built, universities built, the pro-life movement today is a great example of that and people that give themselves to that. Simple things like having a stable family, uh, the Protestant work ethic, things being lost now in our culture and so much good that Christians have brought to the world. God wants to see a continual overflow of justice and righteousness. Treating men with dignity and respect in all circumstances and loving God and honoring God and obeying God. Righteousness and justice. That's what we're called to do and it requires courage because the whole culture's against it. The culture's against it. And it always has been. It always has been. Because righteousness goes against the grain of human rebellion against God. And in the end, righteousness will only come when our Lord returns. The day of the Lord. That will bring righteousness. Christ is coming with great power. So let the religious know that rituals can never make up for sin and injustice. And worship can never move God's heart without righteousness. We are sinners desperately in need of a savior and God provided one and Jesus is his name. In him we can become new creatures and God will write his law on our heart. If you're a Christian, you want to obey God. You know that because your heart tells you that. God wrote that law on your heart. We are forgiven and we are transformed and we can serve mankind and all of its lostness and all of its hypocrisy. We can serve them by being faithful representatives and pointing them to Jesus and exemplifying personally the things that God cares about. That's our task. Okay? Well, I think uh, we need to talk more about worship, uh, but it's Easter season, so 
the next couple weeks here we'll probably be focusing our attention there but then we'll come back to this important topic of worship and well then we'll carry forward with uh, Amos here so let's pray our great father may our worship be acceptable in your sight as we stand sit or kneel before you humbly seeking you as you have defined yourself to us let our very lives be about you let our worship be about you and not us this we ask in your name. Amen.